This call may be recorded or transcribed. Hey, little man. Hey. I'm here. Yes. Uh, and you're there. Yes, I'm taking a walk, so maybe the woman says oh, nice. Loki takes a walk since that was Loki on the road last time. Maybe Loki takes a hike. That sounds a little more. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked so about how... last sorry, you were gonna say something? Go ahead. No, we we were talking about last time about kind of the sense of alienation and the sense of something deeply wrong with society. Yes. <clears throat> And the I don't like it. I, I don't like it. Yeah. So like okay. So like one option is despair, <laughs> right? Which can my be friend. either dropping out friend. or numbing oneself with you know bread and circuses or drugs or whatever. Uh, one is just I guess another option is just going postal. The falling down, Michael Douglas, 1993. By the way, was that movie? I looked right. it up. Oh, okay. Uh, and right, um, and then there's more sophisticated versions of that. So then there's okay. Then there's uh, the the sort of constructive responses reform, right? We need better mm-hmm. laws, better judges, better politicians, and both on the left and the right, kind of everybody seems to be like you know something used to be good, and now those other guys have screwed it up. Put us in charge, and we'll fix it. Common narrative, still popular. Uh, arguably, most of the people who are still engaged in politics deeply believe in one of those narratives. Um, it's their fault, and you know those, those people are the problem. And if you elect us, we will fix it. Right. Uh, and it never a large... Sorry. Oh, and fixing never happens. Right. And the thing is, is that, you know, is interesting. I was talking with the um, um, the Crisis Pregnancy Center, which is kind of on the front lines of a lot of this, and they make the point is that, you know, every time we get a victory, the other side gets mobilized and does something to undercut it. And conversely, every time the other side does something, you know, nasty, then our side gets mobilized to counteract it. And so, you know, it's kind of a wash, you know. I mean, it, it ping-pongs a little bit. But it's not like there's any unmitigated victory. Mm. Right. You know, it is, you know it's, it's not so much that, uh, you know, if there was only, is that there is a weird sort of balance. Uh, uh, and the, so that leads us, so, so the, basically it seems like the options are sort of, uh, Despair or denial. <laughs> like either pretend oh, my favorite. And... <clears throat> yeah. So No, I the... love despair, dude. I love despair. Hopelessness is great. Yeah, but, yeah, but as as you can't sustain it because you still have to eat. And right. part of you still actually cares whether your children starve and whether your wife hates you. <laughs> right. <laughs> so this is how civilization functions is Men get shamed into doing, you know, going to off to work or going to war because they'd rather uh, do that than what was it? The civilization is built on men who would rather die than look bad in their wife's eyes. Mm. <clears throat> right. Yeah. So 
the uh, it, it works, right? <laughs> it, it doesn't really work well, and there's a lot of toxic downsides, but it, it keeps the trains running. Anyway, this leads to the question of Loki. So let's look at the myth on. Uh, so the, my understanding of the myth of Loki is there's Loki, there's the coyote, there's this trickster figure in a lot of ancient mythology. Um, and my mm -hmm. understanding of, of it is that traditional societies, by definition, run on tradition, right? <laughs> if you have yeah. the tradition of the elders and, you know, Generally speaking, you do what you like Moana, right? You just do what your ancestors did. And as long as you keep doing that, everything's fine because they've learned what more or less what works and what doesn't work. And they are, they have the uh, virtue of stability. Well, this has worked for the last few hundred or few thousand years, so you know, it'll probably work next year. Surprising, <laughs> yeah. the seasons keep turning. And as long as nothing changes, you're fine. But the thing is, is that nothing lasts forever, and nothing was around forever, right? This set of traditions and behaviors and us living in this land, you know, goes back maybe a few hundred years, but there's a memory of a time before that when things were different. Maybe things were horrible, we don't want to go back there, but things were different. And so most cultures have this baked in. In Moana, it's the village crazy lady remembers that we were not always people who lived in this island. We used to be something else. We used to be voyagers. Mm. And, as long, and, and it's kind of important to keep that on the fringe because it's, it's kind of subversive and it's kind of dangerous and it kind of gets you into trouble. But it's a really important safety valve or uh, sort of a break in case of emergency kind of thing is that, is that when the world changes, for one reason or another, then you realize that all the normal certainties that let us live now will keep us from doing whatever we have to do to survive what's coming next. And I think mm. that's kind of this idea of the trickster, uh, you know, Loki figure is he represents the thing that in normal times he's just kind of annoying. But as you know, the mm -hmm. best version of this is the Angry Birds movie. Did you ever see this? No, I did not see that movie. <laughs> okay. It's got some great, uh, interesting philosophical points for such a horribly cheesy movie. Uh, but the, you know, the, the, the red bird in the Angry Birds is, you know, angry. <laughs> and right. he is, uh, and he, I think, his sense for anger management with all these other angry birds, right? So it's a, it was a nice setup for, you know, what was the you know, random plot line of the game. And then the pigs attack and like steal all their children. And all the, you know, well-mannered, civilized, well-behaved birds have no idea what to do because they've forgotten mm. how to be angry. They've forgotten how to fight. And suddenly Red, the angry one, has gone from being the loser, reject, outcast to being the hero that they need uh, in this moment. And so that's I'm the sorry, idea. Ernie. I'm just what? a little more picky about my movies. <laughs> that's fine. But but I get what you're saying. That that actually sounds like a really good that sounds like a really good point. It's it's sort of the inverse of falling down. <laughs> yeah. 
I actually uh, like and, that. I like that point. That's a pretty good point that they're they make there. Yeah, like I said, you know, I mean, I think you know your kids are a bit older than mine, so you didn't get dragged into the 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 that particular genre of things. Um, but I mean, like frankly, this this theme of the outcast becoming the hero we all need is fairly common in lots of movies. Right. Um, That's true. You know, and so, yeah, and so you know, this, this for the same reason. It's like you know, uh, and frankly, you know, since the fifties or so, you know, we've been in this civilizational turmoil period where you know the standard narrative it's like you know there was a time when celebrating the standard narrative was interesting but after a while it gets boring and you Mm. want to have something outside of that and that's where these counter narratives the anti-heroes want to play in so the thing about loki so the idea is that loki plays a pivotal role in times of crisis when the existing rules and systems no longer work, where they collapse under their own weight. And mm. the big idea here is that in some sense, what is this to say? Every system is designed, is implicitly designed to get exactly the results it's currently getting. Isn't so like my, it, it, by definition, right? It is effectively, it wasn't intentionally designed. It was implicitly designed more or less accidentally by a series of hacks, right? With some foresight and some deliberate attempts on certain cases, but it evolved in a way where it, it functions at the level it functions. And it has a lot of culture and incentives and rituals and traditions that ensure that it keeps functioning the way it's functioning, right? The status quo is the status quo for a reason. Right. So you think about any, because, you know, you know, everything really, even a simple ecology on an island is an incredibly complex system of moving parts and independent actors. Right. There's some natural forces like the winds and the waves. And then there's living things, you know, like the coconuts and the, the fish and the whales. And then there's all the, the tribal relations of the people. And, you know, for, for, for a society to survive from generation to generation, there's a certain balance and a rhythm that people adhere to, right? If you're in the northern climates, you have to store up food during the summer so you don't die during the winter. If you fail to mm-hmm. have a culture that does this, you die off and, you know, other people take your place, right? Um, if you live in a, yeah. a, a, an area populated by warring tribes, you have a warrior culture where you all have to, the men have to learn how to fight and defend the tribe, uh, you know, and, you know, raid for wives or resources or whatever, because if they don't, the next warrior tribe that shows will just wipe you out and take all your women, right? And that's the end of yeah. your society. And so in the environment they're in, and, you know, like this is the, my, my son was playing the song uh, Rich Men from Richmond. It's one of these country and Western protest songs, uh, you know, about, you know, how, you know, the, the, the rich all screw you and take all your money and, you know, life sucks kind of a thing. And, uh-huh. you know, the thing is, is that, you know, that's kind of the beginning of civilization is you had... You know, before, you ever see Meerkat Manor way back in the day? Oh, how did you know about that? 
Yes, we were watching that on the Animal Planet when we had HGTV, I think, in the really early oh, 2000s wow. or whatever. Matthew was enamored with that show. Who was? Matthew. Your daughter? Our oldest. Matthew, your oldest. Okay, cool. Um, so, yes, you watched it. You understand some of the... I only watched, like, a few episodes, maybe one season of it. Um, but, I think, you know, the thing that's interesting about it is, like, you know, it's not that different from humans. Right? you got a small group of people. It's a little smaller than your typical human group. It's, like, 5 to 10 versus, you know, 150. But, you, uh-huh. know, you can kind of see the power politics, the sexual politics, uh, the sort of competing against other tribes. And, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, before, you know, cities uh, in Mesopotamia, that was more or less how, you know, that's what hunter-gatherer tribes in Africa or Papua New Guinea, you know, how they were functioning before they got civilized. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, is that, you know, you have these, you have your tribe and you trust people in your tribe. Occasionally you made outside your tribe to expand the bloodline, but you just, you know, live uh, with what you with, with what you've got, and you know that's just the way things are. But what happened was is that people said when agriculture happened, you know the, those traditional warrior norms broke down. I think we have talked to you about my theory of Cain and Abel, right? Right. Is that uh, is that once Cain started forming the ground, he like started marking out territories, and you have to defend the territory from your own people and from other people, and then changes the rules of the game dramatically. And the thing about that is that if you've got a lot of grain and your nomadic warrior uh, herdsmen don't, you know, they'll just come and raid you and take your grain. <laughs> and so uh, eventually you realize, well, we got to build a city uh, or something. And usually what happens is, is that, I mean, as far as I can tell, you get the emperor, right? Somebody who says, look, I'm just going to come in. I'm just going to conquer all you people and I will take taxes, but at least I won't like randomly swoop in out of nowhere and kill you for no reason. I will swoop in out of somewhere and kill you for selfish reasons, but that's still a step up. <laughs> right. And this is like the rich men north of Richmond, right? It's like, okay, there's an elite who have a stake in the long-term survival and prosperity of the city. Right. And that's better than having random raiders show up from nowhere who don't care, just, you know, steal all your stuff and kill everybody and leave a smoking ruin. Not necessarily much better, but it is definitely better. Right. You know, and so, but like the system is in some sense just not corrupt enough to keep going. Right. And like, and that's a major achievement, like actually building a stable system that doesn't implode where you have these large scale areas of land under cultivation, whatever, is actually quite hard. You know, it's, you know, mm-hmm. most dynasties don't last more than three or four generations. Um, and so, but the, the, the thing is, is that it's not, you know, the, the, they sell you this myth of these great noble founders, um, you know, and, you know, it's probably more true of America than most places, but, you know, you read the actual stories of William the Conqueror or the, the, the Roman brothers, Romulus and Remus, and they're pretty horrific. (laughs) (laughs) 
You know, it's like these are not saints by any stretch of the imagination, not even pretending to be. At least by the American Revolution, they were pretending to be saints, um, mm. you know, which was a huge step forward. But, you know, the uh, so there's always corruption inherent in the system. And as long as it stays within bounds, the system can function. It just kind of sucks for those who are on the the short end of the stick. But it also kind of sucks for the people at the, on the on the, the the long end of the stick, I guess, because they have to inter because the people on the short on the uh, the unwashed masses get to keep living a traditional lifestyle, right? The people who are poor and and sort of subjugated, they kind of get to you know, uh, you know, they have to deal with the regular uh, offense of taxes, but they don't have the irregular offense of being, you know, overrun by raiders. And they have small communities. They just worry about their home, their homestead and their little plot of land and their, their neighbors. And they do not have a share hatred and contempt of the overlords. And it kind of works. Yeah. Mm. Right, they don't have to worry about Hello? technology or. Ch yep, sorry, did I mute? Oh, uh, go ahead. One, two, three. Yeah. So the 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 proletariat, the the serfs, uh, whatever. You know, in some ways, they get to still live a sort of naive, innocent lifestyle of you know, I just worry about my family and here and now, and doing the same thing I do every year. They don't have to worry about bizarre foreign threats or technological enhancements. That was the world. They, they, they just could sort of keep uh, living this sort of agrarian uh, traditional lifestyle, right? So European peasants in the Middle Ages, you know, they would just do this. They would be like Moana on the island, you know, except for the occasional, you know, war where their lord would draft them to go fight against the neighbor. They would just keep living the same way that their fathers and grandfathers did. It was just the thing that they did. They could, they could stay simple. But the world got a lot more complicated. I think starting with the Industrial Revolution, where suddenly you had to worry about, you know, savings and healthcare and technology and all these things. And so life got way more complicated and literally weird. And, you know, for the last you know, more or less, I mean, so the last big sort of civilization breakdown was like 1640 with the 40 years war. That was where uh, the Treaty of Westphalia happened, uh, the ruins of the Catholic, the, the Catholic Church and the Reformation. And that led to you know, a very, very tumultuous set of, of, of I mean, it wasn't really a breakdown, it was a, it was a break. Uh, yeah. There was a, you know, there, you know, and it wasn't a informational breakdown. I guess it's probably the important thing, is that that's the, you know, the breakdown of the Roman Empire with the Goths, and then what they called sort of northern civilization with the Vikings coming in and whatever. A lot of information and language was lost, that was rediscovered in the Renaissance, right? And in 1640 there was a breakdown of order, but there wasn't a breakdown of information. Like people still kept all the texts, uh, you know, the monasteries more or less kept, you know, functioning the way they did. And um, so you had at least a, uh, a narrative continuity, even if you didn't have organizational continuity. And, you know, the, 
anyway, I've been rambling quite a bit. The, the point is, is that it feels like reformation is that, ah, this is the thing, is that there's lots of, you can keep innovating and uh, sort of layering up the stack and building systems on top of systems to try and keep things going. And we have been doing that since the Treaty of Westphalia. We've invented nation states. We've invented multinational institutions like the League of Nations and the United Nations and the World Bank and the IMF. And, you know, they have worked to sort of keep things on what appears to be a relatively linear path of progress and growth, but the whole edifice is starting to show cracks. Mm. Right? And people wonder if like the solutions we have are causing more problems than they are solving. Uh, and you know, and you've you've worked with old software, haven't you? Legacy software that's been yeah. built up for over a decade. And like you can keep patching it, but and you know, new hardware can make it still run acceptably. But you, you, you call technical debt, right? Where anything you it, like trying to fix something is as likely to break something as it is to add a new feature, right? Right. And at some point, you have to, uh, you know, start over with another system. Try to redesign it, right? Yeah. And what usually happens is that there's also this thing called second system syndrome, in that when you try to rebuild something from scratch, it never works and it takes forever. Yeah. Because you try to like fix everything, you know, and so the only way to actually do that is you have to start small, solve an important problem first, and then gradually displace and overwrite the other system. And that is literally what happened at Apple. It is that they took the uh, next step operating system and basically replaced one piece of it at a time with newer versions of things, uh, and then use that to replace the Mac operating system, the, Mac, the classic Mac, Mac operating OS. system. Right. right. Then you had Mac OS. That's yeah, and Mac they renamed it Mac OS, renamed it Mac OS 10. Yeah. Um, yeah Mac before OS that, it was actually, it wasn't, it wasn't even Mac OS, right? It was System 7 was what it had. They hadn't even thought about it as a separate thing until I think around Mac OS Eight, even the first one that was actually branded Mac OS 8. Um, and then Mac OS 9, bizarrely, uh, that was actually sort of a mistake, but we had to ship it because of awkward reasons. And then Mac OS 10 became the future. I think they even dropped the 10, right? That was just Mac MAC OS um, to go with iOS and watch it uh, and whatever. National parks now and stuff. Right, national landmarks, yeah. Um, Maverick, the beach was one of the first ones. Anyway, uh, anyway, so anyway, the the interesting thing is, this is the exciting opportunity for being a Loki this time around. Is that usually the way Loki is pictured? Is the world ends? There's a time of chaos and destruction. Everything falls apart, and then people start over from scratch. Right. There isn't a lot of continuity from one world to the next. The world just dies and is reborn. And that's just the cycle of life. You know, it happens. And uh, not the cycle of life. Are you gonna go uh Lion King on me? Uh not yet. Because uh, <laughs> uh it's well it's worse than that, right? Because the the you know, the Lion King cycle of life, it's like individuals die 
but the system as a whole persists, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like Mm -hmm. the end of Lion King, you know, suddenly he's emancipating women and, you know, Nala is co-ruling with him and the hyenas become serfs and, you know, live under the lion's empire. You know, it's, it's, it's still the same system that it's been for thousands, if not, you know, millions of years in the savannah. So, but the idea that, um, and this is one of the fascinating things about Christianity, is that most traditional religions have this cyclical idea to it. Life is just one great big cycle that just keeps repeating itself. And there's different periodicities of how it, how the universe dies and is reborn. But, you know, the idea is that it's like, things don't really change. Or the only way to change is to like be bored enough times that you just leave this, you get to, you can, I mean, I guess, you know, Hinduism and Buddhism have the idea that you at least can evolve out of the system, even if the system as a whole doesn't change. You can kind of work your way out of it. Um, Sorry? Nothing ever changes. It's crazy. Oh, so, 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 so what do you mean by when you say, you're talking about those philosophies or you're talking about how you feel about reality as it is? No, I was just, uh, you know, you can have like, I mean, I guess regionally things can change. Nothing's changed in SoCal for as long as I can remember. Oh, yeah? Uh, the, the Los Angeles is public transit. I never thought that would happen. Yeah. Right. Well, There's... I, mean, I mean, I mean, as far as disrupting the uh, middle class corporate America working system. Well, I mean, there have been certain certain disruptions. Like, like when I was there, like the defense industry was the largest manufacturer, largest employer in the Los Angeles area. And after the Cold War ended, I think during the falling down period, like that all imploded. Right. So things change. Right, industries rise, industries fall. Um, so, what exactly? This is actually a really interesting question. What is the thing that you feel has stayed the same? The middle class are still middle class. The rich are still rich. The poor are still poor. I'll get. I'll give you that. Right. Keep doing. Just sorry. Every day, come home. Just goes on and on and on. No end. Oh, so that's the interesting thing, right, is what would count as change? You moving out to a to a, 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 a ghost town in the middle of nowhere? Oh, uh, yeah, the post, post-apocalyptic. Where do you go? Yeah. So apocalypse is a great word. It's a good segue because uh, apocalypse has several meanings. Like, it literally just means revelation. It doesn't necessarily mean, uh, you know, we tend to use the word apocalypse as something really bad, but as Larry Wall pointed out, uh, he's a Christian who wrote the Pearl programming language, and he had Pearl 6 was the apocalypse. He goes, apocalypse isn't bad news. It's like it's bad news for the bad guys, but it's actually good news for the good guys. I don't know how you want to look at it, but it does mean that there is a change. There is a new revelation. And this is the really interesting idea of one, you know, that there is an apocalypse coming, but there's lots of religions that have the idea of an apocalypse, Ragnarok, the end of the world. 
But the Christian idea of the apocalypse is the arrival of the kingdom of God on earth. Right. You know? And I had a really fascinating um, vision, revelation, insight, crazy theory, whatever you want to call it. Oh, what? Like, okay, about the apocalypse. Like, okay, let's, let's play this out. So there's a couple of different visions. Of, like, let's say that the kingdom of God is coming. What would that look like? So one possibility, I have an uncle who clearly believes this, is that Jesus will come and institute a totalitarian state where he tells everyone what to do and enforces that everyone does the right thing all the time, whether they want to or not. <laughs> that is a possible vision of that, right? There are certain people who think that would be heaven on earth. Uh, many of us think that would be hell on earth, but <laughs> that is you know, one possibility. It's like, okay. But another possibility is, okay, well, if he doesn't do that, then what? It's like, well, let's assume that Jesus comes in a physical human form that is only in one place at one time and only has 24 hours in the day. And like, as they say, let's say hypothetically, he sets up a world capital in Jerusalem after conquering all the armies that come against him. And he ushers in a thousand years. It's like, okay, what would that, how would that actually work? Well, he'd probably have to work through some sort of system of governments and bureaucracies and things to figure out how to have, you know, the best possible laws that are responsible to local conditions. And he would have to delegate. Right. If he still only has 24 hours in a day, he would mm -hmm. have to, you know, like find people he trusts and work with them with their human limitations to communicate and pass out and enforce his decrees. And it's like, well, okay, so you still like, you know, and you know, you could take problems directly to Jesus and get a definitive ruling, but there's only yeah, so many of those things he can do. Right? You'd have to like, you know, there have to be some process for that. <laughs> Because literally, like, he only still only has 24 hours in a day. It's like, okay, so what would actually be better about that world than the way we're than the one we're in? And I realized there's there's um, two things that I thought would be really interesting about the world that we don't have. One is that it would be really obvious who was on Jesus's side, right? Because Jesus would have people who were, you know, authorized to speak for him and carry out his pronouncements or whatever. And, uh -huh. and then they would be accountable. Like you would assume that Jesus would know pretty quickly if someone who claimed to bear his name was abusing it or someone was pretending to bear his name when they didn't. Right? Yeah. And so you would know. And the second thing you would know is that he would have official decrees that is like, this is the policy of how we should handle things. This is the law of the land. So it's like, okay, the two things you would actually get that you don't have now, one is you would know who was on Jesus' side, and you would know what he wants. And that would be the biggest advantage, and that everyone would, would know that, right? right? Mm -hmm. so thought, okay, well, well, in that case, why couldn't we start living like that now? And so I decided I'm just going to choose to believe that, you know, that, and let's just start with that, is that, is that if we can just agree on what Jesus wants, and who's on his side, and we start living like that now, we can start living by the kingdom of God, living in this apocalyptic vision of reality, um, even if the rest of the world doesn't know it yet. And that is already the best way to live. Yeah. And, and, 
And the interesting thing is, like, like at the time we talk about the software analogy, this, this is what we had to live through at Apple, is that between the time that Steve Jobs came back in 1997 and we shipped Mac with in, I think, 2001, there was like four years where we knew what reality was going to be like, but it wasn't fully here. And some of us could live on it in versions of it, um, but the rest of the world couldn't. And, you know, now there's a billion people using iOS, you know, but, mm -hmm. you know, in, you know, 25 years ago, there was, you know, people, there was only people living in proto versions of that, but we believed, right? You know, mm -hmm. after we got through the initial skepticism, it's like Steve said, this is the world we're going to build. This is what it's going to look like. This is the technology. This is the platform. And these are some early prototypes or ancestors. Like, you know, next step is like Judaism to Mac OS. <laughs> like, you've got a lot of the pieces there, um, but it's kind of locked into a very narrow sect that doesn't scale well. Um, and this, and just like next step was fused with the Mac OS, like, you know, Judaism was fused with Greek philosophy, you know, it became this thing and it grew up. And the thing that is interesting about being a Loki in this context is that in the traditional version of Loki, Loki is a sense, has a sense of being just purely random, right? Uh, uh -huh. just like, you know, and that was his strength, but it was also his weakness, right? He just kept betraying himself for the fun of it because he couldn't help him because he had no bigger thing to anchor himself on, right? I mean, this is the other really terrifying thing you realize when you study history is all the things we think of as morality were sort mm -hmm. of based on incentives of how the world worked at that time. Like if you have an agrarian society, uh, like, you know, the words in English for husband, houseband, right? And mm -hmm. wife, these words were associated with, um, I, I think if I sound like, you know, animal husbandry, like that a man would carve out a plot of land for himself and become a house band, uh, you know, with a wife. And I was reading how that in, you know, pre but before agriculture, uh, before the wheelbarrow, actually, people had to live in these sort of tight little villages. And often you would have like the men's hut and the women's hut, right? Like you saw that in parts of Africa, because you didn't really have the nuclear family. And the wheel, the wheelbarrow, because the only way to lift heavy things and do stuff was to have everyone there in the village. Like you couldn't carry food back and forth from places. But when you actually invented the wheelbarrow, then you could like go off and have your own homestead and get away from the in-laws and <laughs> build your own <laughs> home. And that like changed the whole concept of marriage and autonomy. And that's, you know, some technical innovation like that gave us the words husband and wife, mm. you know? You know, and certainly there's the biblical narrative, which seems to be tied to, you know, uh, all sorts of things. And I'm not saying that there isn't a transcendent morality involved there. But the idea is that most of what we, this is the important thing, most of what we consider morality is based on our culture's incentives and context. And even if it has some transcendent value, we don't actually know what's transcendent and what's cultural. Mm. Right? We just have our morality. And this is the thing about Loki, is if you're just from a traditional culture, all you have is tradition, 
And anyone who breaks tradition is by definition immoral. Right? This is why mm-hmm. Huckleberry Finn felt ashamed for helping a slave escape. Because he was stealing from the widow who owned him. Right? There's just no other way to look at it other than stealing. You know? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. You know? And so, like, is that if all you have is tradition, then if you break tradition, then you are a rogue. You are uh, um, anathema. And, and there isn't anything else. Anchor. But the, so the, this, this is, oh, wow, this is actually turning into baptizing Loki, right? The idea of, you know, and this is where, you know, revolutions, you know, the, uh, there was the, uh, the Glorious Revolution was the first one, which was when I guess William and Mary, William of Orange came from the Netherlands to kick out the king. And even reading some histories about it, I'm still not quite sure why, but I guess the thing is he was like just as much of a foreigner and just as corrupt, but he was at least competent. <laughs> and the other, the guy in charge was like completely incompetent. And so everyone was very happy to have someone to have, it's better to have, and this is true, right? It's better to have a competent tyrant than a completely incompetent one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because they'll just run the economy into the ground and just have everyone just killing themselves in pointless battles. Whereas a competent tyrant will, you know, have everyone running in the same direction in terror and killing people in, in battles that have a point of expanding his influence as the monarch. And so that was a step up. And then the American Revolution was a big deal. And then 1848 was the year of like the socialist revolutions across Europe, uh, where people said, you know, hey, maybe we don't have to be serfs anymore. <laughs> and, uh, you know, all these revolutions, uh, there was this, the, 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 the sense of the modern era is that instead of being religious wars, the way it was beforehand, it, uh, uh, of one civilization against another, frankly, there was this idea of an ideological revolution, right? The American Revolution, the Communist Revolutions. Like there's an ideology that we are doing. So we're not just uh, fighting to go back to the way things were or fighting for my side versus your side. We're fighting for this thing that is bigger and better than us in the future. Mm. And, right, you don't really find, I mean, you just find the occasional anarchist, but even that's almost an ideology. Um, and, and what's interesting is that, you know, American politics has really mostly de- 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 um evolved in a sort of reactionary tribalism. Mm-hmm. Like my side was winning and we thought that was good. And now you're trying to roll back our changes. So we're going to try and go back to the trajectory we were on. And we're just putting this crazy tug of war back and forth. And they claim to be supporting sort of transcendent ideals, but really they just want things to go back to what it looked like when they felt they were in charge. And the the crazy thing about trying to be a Loki in this environment is that words are mostly useless because all the interesting words have been co-opted by, by other people. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, the only reason those words ever meant anything, this is one thing chat GPT taught me. They only meant something because people beforehand have put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into assigning value to those words because they fought over it so much that it mattered. And then, but now people just sort of abuse the words. They kind of like wring all the meaning out of the words. 
like one of my favorite rants is this idea of the war on marriage in conservative Christian circles. Yeah. You know, people worried about, you know, the, you know, the same sex marriages and transgender and all this stuff. And like, you know, I understand the, the, the agony there because like certainly there's a lot of horrific damage that's been done, but then I realized, wait a second, we already went through this in the eighties with divorce. Right. And I don't know if you remember this, you're a little bit younger than me, but like all the conservative Christian troops were up in arms about no fault divorce and, you know, easy divorce laws. And this is the end of uh, civilization. And, you know, can, you know, divorced people be Christians? Can divorced people be ministers? Like literally the exact same arguments we're having about homosexuality. We had 20 years earlier about divorce. Mm hmm. And we lost, like, categorically, thoroughly, without even a whimper. Like, the Christian church basically said, yeah, um, uh, so we'll, we'll just deal with it, right? I mean, you know, the idea of a pastor having been divorced, the idea of divorced people being in the church, like, that's not a question that we even ask anymore. And it's like, you know, what happened? Like... <laughs> And what happened was is you realized that we had this horrible tension between, you know, like when it was them, we could say, oh, that's a problem. But when it's us, when it's the, your next door neighbor or the person who's in the church council with you who gets divorced, it's like, oh, well, like in theory, I like the idea of taking a stand against, but in practice, I, guess, I just can't see myself kicking this person out. <laughs> you know, that just doesn't feel right. And so we just kind of gave up. And it was like, once you do that, then like, the whole idea, I mean, and, you know, the whole idea of marriage, you know, it's like, well, then what are we exactly fighting about anymore, right? We've already given up on the biblical anchor and, like, we paid a heavy price for it, right? I mean, the, the breakdown of marriage and child poverty and crime and everything is horrific. Like, it's not that there aren't consequences. Mm -hmm. To claim the moral high ground when, like, the whole infrastructure has fallen apart is is meaningless and that's the thing is that like we we use words the way chat gpt does because we've heard them used a certain way we've actually lost sight of the battles that people fought and what they meant and we're just sort of following the letter of the law or arguing about the words of the law and to be a loki in this generation means a we have to be transcendent but b we can't rely on words we actually have to find a new way of being in the world, almost like in this primitive pre-linguistic, pre-cultural sense that people are able to experience and live in a new reality. This is the big thing I learned at Apple is that words are mostly useless when people don't know what you're talking about. You have to actually show them. That's why Apple has retail stores. Um, you know, that's why the iPod was so powerful to give people a taste of what good design would feel like in a product. Um, mm. You know, and the, uh, the exciting thing is like, I think the reason you understandably want to live in a ghost town, right, is because it feels like you cannot be yourself in the system as it exists the weight of it is just too heavy and too pervasive and too corrupt. Mm. Am I right? Um, I don't want to say you're not right. 
apparently okay. not as a dark day, but I suppose it's possible. Okay, that's fine. I'll think of possible. And maybe that's a good place to end it. That was a very epic rant. I appreciate your patience. Um, <laughs> but that is the question of, and that's a good place to maybe start it next time, is like, what would it feel like to be free? And is it possible to be free and still be in relationship with other people? Because mm. I think that's right. always the tension. It's like, you know, if I'm just locked in a monastery or living in a ghost town and I can somehow feed myself and not die, it's then, not just you know, sorry? It's not just that. It's the practicalness. Mm. It's, it's the physicality. Physicality I really, of I don't I really don't see it as a spiritual thing. What do you see it as? Um, I'm just bored in life. I'm bored with well, so, but, <laughs> but you see it as a psychological thing, right? Same old career every day and, and be at home and waiting to go to work again. I'm just it's boring. I just <laughs> Right. I mean, sorry. Exploration of the environment and geography around me. But you want survival to be hard? Unknown. The city is unknown. I've done every gone everywhere in SoCal. Ah. Yes. The um. The. You you, you are disenchanted. The city right. no longer feels like a magical place. Okay, that's interesting. That is a... We're all bored. We're all bored. We just don't know that. I do them. Well, yeah, no, I think you're... Is that the, 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 and people do all sorts of things. One of the reasons I'm fasting this month, you know, giving up fiction and alcohol, because I want to try and confront those feelings that we medicate away Right. I mean, this is why, you know, alcoholism was kind of invented as a thing, you know, when people moved to the cities, because before life was just hard and, you know, it was hard to get drunk and it was, but you had to get up and work in order to survive. But then the gin joints and everything, you know, upended all of that because it was more efficient, to, easier to get drunk and easier to, you know, live marginally. And so this is the, so this is the, uh, ooh, this is the, exciting idea, right? Is there a way to, uh, I mean, this is actually the hope, is that once you actually make the transition to living like a Loki, then civilization becomes this bizarre foreign place. And it becomes a lot scarier, but it does regain that enchantment, the mm. mystery, the sense that there is like a whole series of crazy undercutters and an alternate world living. Anyway, I will leave it uh, there for now, and I will get back to the rest of my ordinary routine life, <laughs> more or less. But thank you for uh, listening and dropping in. And tomorrow, are you still on the road? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm here at least right. until Saturday morning. Okay, we'll see if we can find some time tomorrow night. All right. Thank you. All right. Love you, man. Love you, little man. Talk to you later. Good night. Bye. Bye.
Thank you.